you'll find your place in the book of Acts, in God's Word, we will pick up in chapter 15. As you're finding your way to Acts chapter 15. Almost uh, 12 years and almost five children in, I think my wife and I are finally learning how to fight. (laughs) Um, I laugh sometimes on the inside when I'm doing counseling or when I'm talking with young couples and uh, young couples talk about how they they never fight. Um, You know, she'll say, well, he's just so cute and I could just never be mad at him. And he says, well, she's my soulmate. You know, we always agree. I mean, she can even finish my sentences. I think to myself, yeah, Lauren finishes my sentences too sometimes. (laughs) Honey, I'd really love it if you, you can get your own sandwich. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to see if you wanted one. (laughs) So conflict like that is inevitable. But it's not all bad. Sometimes conflict is really helpful. It can reinforce our good choices and it can correct some bad ones. In our marriage, Lauren and I are getting to the point where we're both trying to learn to say, you were right. Thank you for pushing us in that direction. We're both working on that. That's evidence, though, of healthy conflict. Well, today's message is from Acts 15, and what we see here is that this young and rapidly growing church is engaged in conflict. There's a strong disagreement. And like we said earlier, not all conflict is bad. Sometimes there are fights that need to happen, and this is one of those moments. There are some in the church who are saying that Gentiles that are being saved need to be circumcised in order to and come under the law of Moses. Essentially, the argument is if you want to become a Christian, you must become one of us. They're saying to be saved, you must do blank. Now, this argument could have really thrown the church off course. This is a massive problem, but praise God, they worked through conflict and became even more resolved to preach the true gospel of grace. So my hope for today for this message is that we will three things joyfully cling to the gospel of grace, that we will be more aware of some of our own dangerous tendencies toward legalism and that we won't make it difficult for any outsider to come to Christ. Those are my three goals. With that in mind, let's uh, dig into the scriptures. And around here, we like to stand in honor of God's word. So as you stand, let's read together. We have a lengthy passage, so um, maybe lean on that chair, okay? Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, listen, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets also agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent that David has that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is this. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, then it seemed good to all the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the very same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now listen to this. If you keep 
yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by Paul and Barnabas, remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. This story of a church in the midst of uh, a, a great division over some serious doctrine. We thank you, Lord, for the diligence, the conversation, the debate that happened that brought us to this point. And today we declare along with these scriptures that we are saved not by what we do, but by what Christ has done. And it's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. So Paul and Barnabas have been on a missionary journey. They've traveled all over the region sharing the gospel. And they've seen many, many Gentiles come to faith in Christ. They've established churches in Gentile regions with lots of different kinds of people. People from all different walks of life who... Don't share any of the Jewish customs. Well, these differences are now stirring up a problem. So along their journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas and even Peter are discovering that God is saving people whether they're circumcised or not. God is saving people whether they adhere to Jewish customs or not. God is saving people by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. This gospel was advancing, making no distinction. We learned that very clearly when we talked about Cornelius and Peter going to Cornelius and his eyes being opened that what God was calling clean, meaning those people, he was not to call them unclean. Well, the Jews had come to understand over centuries that trusting in God meant coming under the weight of God's law. That's just what it meant. Not just the big ten, the the ten great commandments, but also the the traditions, the the rabbinical law as well. There's 613 laws. This includes circumcision as a sign that a man is committing himself to God, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's kind of their entry point. So the Gentiles are coming to believe the gospel. God is giving them the Holy Spirit. He's making no distinction. He's cleansing their hearts by faith. And this is where a strong debate began. You can almost hear people in the church, those of a more legalistic bent. You you hear them saying, we're not going to abandon the law of Moses, are we? No, we can't do that. These new Christians, they have to keep the law just like we do, right? I mean, I know they're trusting in Christ. But we really need them to become good Jews, too. That's that's the dialogue. That's what's happening. And so we notice how chapter 15 opens. It opens with this argument and this bold statement. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So now this is getting serious. 
All the men in the room are like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Hold up. I, I can imagine the, uh, the line for the new members class of the church shrunk down quite a bit at that point, right? I mean, uh, so it was actually pretty common for non-Jews to believe and worship the Jewish God. That was something that's been happening for a long time. But if they really wanted to be legitimate and come into the Jewish religion, it was to come in by way of circumcision. It was to come under the law of Moses. So in Acts 15, these Jewish Christians assumed that this was just going to be a no-brainer, that, that these same rules are going to apply when people are trusting in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. But listen to this. In adding to the gospel, they lost the gospel altogether. If we add to the gospel, we lose the gospel. This Jerusalem council... They de debated how people are saved. This is super important. It gave the early church some established doctrinal integrity, clarity about what we believe. So this conflict and the resolution that follows will be the reference point to call us again and again away from legalism and toward the gospel of grace. So I want to answer the question that they stirred up with the text. How are we saved? How are we saved? We are saved by grace alone. Acts 15, 11, Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Notice what he's doing there. He's saying we just as they grace levels the playing field by admitting that God gives salvation to those that do not deserve it. I love the song that we sang earlier. Uh, J.M. And, and the guys were leading us, by the way, love the spoken word, brother. God, I love that. Bless me, man. Praise Jesus for that. But the song says what I earned is not what I got. What I deserve, that's not what's given to me. That's the truth of grace. Listen, we tend to resist grace mostly because of the terrible things it declares about us. Our human side pushes against grace because what it says is you don't deserve it. None of us is righteous is what the Bible teaches. We are all needy sinners. So when we say grace alone, what we mean is that God gives. We do not earn salvation. And Peter is speaking into the argument and he's reminding these Jewish Pharisees, these believers who are of the Pharisee party, he's reminding them, guys, you don't really think you deserve God's grace either, do you? Because you don't. We are saved by grace, and so are they. Grace alone. We are saved by faith alone. Acts 15, verse 9, Peter says that God cleansed their hearts by faith. 
He cleansed their hearts. We're going to spend some time on that in a moment. But here's the thing. Sin is no longer covered through the skins of animals or through the sacrifices of religion. In Jesus, sin is not just covered or hidden. It is cleansed and removed. Amen. That's the beauty of the gospel. Circumcision of the flesh is no longer a spiritual significance because through Christ in the new birth, salvation, Christ circumcises the heart of all who believe. Our hope is not in what we do, but what Christ has done. Religion says do, but the gospel says done. We are saved by faith alone. We're saved by Christ alone. Acts 15, 10, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's what Matthew 5, 17 tells us. Now listen to what that means. The requirements of the law still matter. He's not doing away with the law. He's fulfilling the law. They still matter, but they have been perfectly satisfied in Jesus. He alone is righteous before God. He alone can bear the weight of the yoke that Peter talked about when he said, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear it. The good news of the gospel is that all who come to Christ find righteousness and rest in him and him alone. There is no one else who saves. We are saved by a person, not a program, not a pathway, and not principles. We're saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So gospel mathematics work like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you add to the gospel, you lose the goodness of the gospel. These truths are bedrock. They're bedrock to the good news of Jesus. But I want to ask you, if we walk away from this text and all we have is doctrinal statements, then that's great. But can we dig deeper To see what is at the bottom of these statements. Does this passage only help us clarify our doctrine? Is the main point of this text just to steer us in the direction of great truths about God's salvation? Well, certainly it gives us clarity in theology. And we hold to and affirm these truths today. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But this argument is not a one and done kind of argument. It's going to continue and continue and continue. You'll see Paul writes to the the believers in Rome and over and over and over again. He's having to teach them that there is a righteousness apart from the law. Abraham wasn't saved because of obedience, but because of faith. He's going to go on and on and on to teach this idea of righteousness by faith in Christ. The book of Galatians in particular, Paul says... You began in the spirit. Why do you now think you're going to be perfected in the flesh? We are made righteous by Christ through faith in Christ. 
the book of Galatians in chapter 2 in particular, there's a verse, I believe it's on the screen. Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is not a one and done argument. This is the main issue behind the great reformation in the 1500s. This is why Martin Luther got so upset with the Roman Catholic Church. And it's why we are not Roman Catholic. Because the Catholic Church says Jesus plus works equals salvation. We cannot affirm that. We must say it's Jesus and Jesus alone. If we're honest, though, this is not a problem that only happens outside of us with other religious sects and other places. No, this is a problem that we have to fight in our own hearts to place our hope in Christ alone every day. Every day I wake up a legalist. I constantly think that my worth and identity is wrapped up in how good I am. And I have to turn that on its head and relearn and preach to myself the gospel that my worth is in Christ and Christ alone. So I want to tell you the big question underneath this text, it's lurking behind it, is not just how are we saved, but listen, how is my brokenness, my sin, how is it fixed? And I want to take a broad look, a sweeping look at the whole of Scripture and give you three options. These are three options for fixing our sin problem, our brokenness. First, we hide. This is by this, I mean, we try to fix it ourselves. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you remember in the Garden of Eden, when sin entered this world, Adam and Eve felt a brand new sensation they'd never felt before. Shame. Guilt. Just before this moment, we read that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. That's beautiful, right? And then the very next chapter, sin enters the world and all of a sudden, what was beautiful is now shameful. So what do they do? When their nakedness is exposed and they see it as guilt and shame, they feel this need to conceal. Do they run to their good creator and plead for help? No. They try to fix it themselves. They hide. And similarly, we run and hide our shame with our makeshift fig leaves, just like Adam and Eve. For example, we give the world the glamour shot version of ourselves. Let our, our people, even our closest people, only get so close. We only want to reveal the best and brightest moments. Social media is littered with the highlights of people's lives. But it's not real. It's people who are hiding. Or maybe... We come across a, a good cause, 
an opportunity for generosity and philanthropy. And we think, well, this is a really good cause. We, we, should, we should give. But we give to good causes, not because they're good causes, but because they make us look good. It shows well for us. And again, we hide what's broken. We conceal it with fig leaves. Or maybe when we look in the mirror and we see brokenness, we just straight up lie to ourselves. And we say, this is not bad. I should not be ashamed of this sin. Who does God think he is anyway? I shouldn't feel guilty for doing what I'm doing. It's not hurting anyone. And we hide from the truth. These are a few ways that we try to hide. There are many more, but who are we kidding? How can you hide from Almighty God? So maybe instead of hiding, we try to cover. So option two is cover. And here's what I mean. We look to the good external things to be saving things. Before Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, God clothed them. You know, they tried to clothe themselves, but the God clothed them with the skins of animals. Now, this was the beginning of what would become the sacrificial system that God's going to establish to atone. That word atone means cover. To atone for past sins committed. Now, listen carefully. This is very important. This system, the sacrificial system, is intended to show the people God's steadfast love and patience. It was a picture of the promised Christ. But this religious system became less about God's goodness and more of a measuring stick for our own. We too put our hope in religious structures around us. We go to church every time the doors are open. Read my Bible every day and pray. Give 10% at least to the church and give to a few other good causes. Or maybe you're like me and you just feel good about yourself when things are just clicking. You know, you, you woke up early, you went to the gym, and you, you, you got to work and you're doing things are just moving. And you're like, this is this is it. This is great. But on those days where you're slipping, you slept in, you slept through your alarm, uh, you got road rage on the way to work and you just feel about everything. On those days, regret, shame and sadness are your unwanted friends. You just can't get rid of them because it's about what you do that brings you worth. There's a lot of ways that we cover. Right. And I'm not saying these things are bad things. I'm just saying these things are not saving things. Know this, the externals like we just talked about are good things, but they will not save you. I wonder if we were asked to describe a Christian, would we focus on external things like these? 
You know, a Christian is somebody who goes to church regularly. They, they read their Bible. They pray. Probably that's the way we would describe them. Or maybe we might even think in uh, really legalistic terms and think about what Christians don't do. You know, well, Christians, they, they don't sleep around. They don't, you know, fill in the blank, right? There's a long list of those things too. Or would we use the internal transformation markers that Peter does? When he's trying to validate that God is rescuing Gentiles to himself, he doesn't point to their circumcision or their obedience to laws. He says they have the Holy Spirit. They've been cleansed in their hearts by faith. They're saved by the grace of Jesus, just like we are. Church, every one of us is a natural legalist. It's just the natural bent of our hearts. We either hide and fix our problems ourselves or we cover them with religious systems. It's kind of like we're in our car and the car is out of alignment. And every time you let go of the wheel, it just veers off into the ditch. That's the way it is. We must steady our grip on the gospel of grace. So lift your eyes and look to Jesus. He's the only one who can truly save you. What Peter teaches and what's in this text is that in Christ, we are cleansed. So I've titled this message, Hide, Cover, or Cleanse. So I want to get to the really good news of the gospel. All the hiding, all the covering, it'll never do it. But by grace through faith in Christ, you can be made clean. The law was never established to bring healing. It was meant to expose your brokenness. I'm going to say this about three or four different ways because we need to get it. I want you to think about God's law like an x-ray. You're hurting. You've hurt yourself. So you go. You go to get checked out. They take an x-ray image of, say, your arm. Well, the image shows the internal damage. The bones beneath the surface that are broken. It, it reveals it does not heal. You would never take that x-ray picture and wrap it around your arm and expect it to heal your broken bone. You just don't have that expectation. You look at the image to see what's wrong. You don't look to the image to fix it. That's the way the law of God works. It was never meant to be your savior. It was meant to show you how deeply you need one. Peter says that the law is a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Can you just imagine for a minute? I mean, 613 laws. Imagine the conversations. Hey, guys, how many steps are we allowed to take on the Sabbath? I've, I've taken like 17 and I can't remember, you know, how many more I have. Hey, what is that fabric you're wearing? It's not a polyester tunic, is it? Uh, Thomas? Is that turkey bacon? Because it doesn't smell like turkey. I mean, can you just imagine how difficult just keeping the laws are? And what Peter's telling them is... Why are we putting a yoke, a burden on these new believers that we know ourselves we're not able to bear? We can't keep up with all the law, much less keep it. 
Here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. The law was not too heavy for Christ. He perfectly kept all of God's law. He bore the yoke, even though he never failed. He suffered and died. He was the scapegoat on which our sins are laid. He was the spotless lamb whose blood was shed for your forgiveness. Jesus does not hide your sin. He does not just cover your sin. By faith in Jesus, you are cleansed. 1 John 1, 9 says it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's amazing, right? That's the gospel of Jesus. So in our text today, we have Peter, Paul and Barnabas preaching the good news of cleansing grace through faith in Jesus to those who've been hiding. They've been trying to fix it themselves. They're distant. They've been hiding. But those who've been covering with the law. Look at these who've been hiding who are now saved and they say, well, you got to cover up with the same law coverings that, that we're using. You can't be saved unless you cover like we're covering. And Paul and Peter and Barnabas are coming back to the bedrock truth of the gospel. And here's how James concludes the, the argument. He says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is a powerful moment. I want to pause right here for just a bit and then we'll we'll be finished. The church is finally lifting its eyes to a world of people that are not like them in any way except in their need for a savior. Suddenly, that is all that matters. Mountain View, I, I don't want us to make it difficult for Gentiles in our community to come to Christ. That doesn't mean we water down the gospel. It just means we do not add to it. In Luke 5, Jesus was challenged for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he said to those who challenged him, the well don't need a doctor. But I've come for the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. So church, let's remember our mission. Our mission is like Jesus in that we are called to love sinners like Jesus did. Remembering that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're not a believer today, I want to tell you some good news. Jesus came for sinners. So if you would confess today. I need mercy. I need forgiveness. I need help. If the load of law is too heavy for you, and it is, here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
Jesus removes the yoke of the law and he invites you to yoke up with him by grace through faith.